good. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to pick up in verse 31 tonight. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, and I anticipate going through verse 42 this evening. Okay, Matthew 5, 31 to 42, but we'll start reading in 31, and we'll read through the um, end of the chapter. Okay, let's read, and then we'll pray, and then have our Bible study. Matthew 5, 31 says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight, Lord, to study your word. And Lord, we do pray that you would continue to teach us, Lord, of how it is that you require, Lord, not merely an external or a partial conformity to the law, but a complete and a whole conformity. Lord, that this is the type of life that we should live as a result of the gospel of Christ. Lord, seeking to obey you in every part. Lord, both within the heart, Lord, in our attitudes, in our thoughts, in our actions. Lord, everything that we do, Lord, should be in conformity to your will and to those things that are pleasing to you. So, Father, we pray that you teach us, and Lord, keep us from... Uh, presenting to you a, Lord, a life that is subpar and less than what you require. Lord, thinking that we are approved uh, by giving to you a half-hearted and a meager devotion to your word. Lord, teach us to be completely and wholly faithful in all things, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, we remember that we are in the Sermon on the Mount, and in this sermon, Jesus is teaching uh, many truths to contradict and correct the false teachings, the false doctrines that were being promoted during his own day. Uh, and here we're in this section where he is dealing specifically with a false interpretation of the law, a, a half-hearted or a partial obedience to God, uh, where a person was doing one part of the law or some kind of outward conformity to a part of the law, but was not giving to God a complete or a whole obedience to him, right? Leaving out portions and that are the greater portions, but then convincing themselves that they had fulfilled their duty to God. And this is in direct relation to what he said in verse 20, that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, right? If we don't have true righteousness, then we will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not that our righteousness that we produce, right, that is the result of the changed life, is the basis of our salvation. We know that that's never the case. Christ and Christ alone is always the basis of our salvation. It is his righteousness that is imputed to us that makes us acceptable in the sight of God. But when that righteousness of Christ is given to a man, it is not an impotent righteousness, but rather it is effective, right? It is efficacious in the man it produces something in him so that he wants to obey God and the obedience that he then presents as his response to the love of God given to him is going to be a conformity 
to the law of God. He's going to want to obey God. As Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this obedience to the commandment of God has to be complete, right? It cannot be a partial, a half-hearted, right, obedience to God. We can't say, okay, well, I'm going to obey God, and as long as I don't murder someone, physically take the life of an innocent person, then I fulfilled my duty to God, I've kept the sixth commandment, and therefore I have done what God requires, while at the same time being angry all the time, right? Cursing people, calling them names, insulting them, right? Doing those kinds of things day in and day out, but then saying, no, I've been faithful to God because I haven't actually murdered someone, and therefore I'm presenting this to God, and God is pleased with me. Or a person who would say that, just because they haven't committed the physical act of adultery, that they have therefore fulfilled all of the obligations that are uh, considered and a part of the seventh commandment, that you shall not commit adultery. So I haven't committed the physical act. However, my mind and my heart are filled with evil thoughts, with lustful thoughts, that I'm consumed with these things, yet I think and convince myself that I'm righteous and I've done what's pleasing to God, because I haven't committed the physical act of adultery while at the same time harboring all of these things in my heart. Jesus is saying, no, you can't do that, right. right? You have to see that what God requires in terms of our obedience, in terms of the righteousness that we uh, perform as a result of the salvation given to us, isn't that what we're called to do? Live a godly and a righteous life, to be obedient to God. We'll be talking about this on Sunday morning, right, from 1 Peter chapter 2, 24 to 26, where it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We die to sin and we live to righteousness. This is the Christian life, is being obedient, faithful to God, pursuing godliness. Well, that pursuit of godliness has to be consistent with the law of God. And the law of God was never intended to be understood merely of externals, but it touches the very heart of man. It goes all the way to encompass every aspect of our being, and we have to have both internal and the external obedience to God, and this is what's pleasing in the sight of God. That's the kind of life that we have to live, and that is the righteousness that will exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, because their righteousness was merely external, hypocritical righteousness. It wasn't even true, but they pretended to be righteous, but on the inside they were filled with all sorts of filth and unrighteousness and evil. So that is what he's addressing in this passage. He's correcting this false interpretation where people are cherry-picking or misinterpreting parts of the law and then saying, this is all that God requires, and then leaving off and justifying their sin in these many other areas. And Jesus is saying, no. You can't do that. You can't think that just because you haven't committed the physical act of adultery, that that means that you've kept the seventh commandment. But God requires internal obedience as well, that you can't even lust after a woman, and that's what you should desire. Neither to lust in your heart, nor to commit the physical act of adultery. Right? Both of those need to be a part of the righteousness that we are seeking to follow and live within the Christian life. So that's what he's dealing with here. And there is a spiritual component to the law. The law is a spiritual law. It's not merely an external law. Yes, the law does have external components, and there are external punishments, but those external punishments associated with the law of Moses are to teach us that there is a greater punishment that awaits those who break the law of God and that is on the day of judgment. And when God judges on the day of judgment, he will judge not merely by what we do externally, but he will also judge the secrets of the heart, the secret intentions of the heart. He's going to bring it all forward, and that's what we're going to be judged by on the day of judgment. And We cannot think that we can present this meager, external, half-hearted conformity to the law, and that God's going to be pleased with us. So, we have to live a godly life. And that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. What true godliness, what true righteousness consists of, right? And again, 
not as the basis of their salvation. Of course, he's not teaching that. He's teaching this as the fruit of salvation, right? The fruit of salvation. Faith without works is dead. Well, what are the works that we need to do that are pleasing to God? What is the obedience that we need to do that is pleasing to God? Well, he's teaching us. This is what it means, okay? So he's dealt with anger. He's dealt with lust. Now he moves on to another issue that was prominent in their day and one that is prominent in ours as well, and that is the issue of divorce, right? Divorce. That They also had a corrupted view of the law of Moses concerning divorce, and then they were using this corrupt interpretation to basically have divorce on demand. No fault divorce, however they wanted and however they please, which is what we have in our own day as well. Okay, so verse 31. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Here it was said, again, when he's saying this, you have heard it was said, you have heard it was said, it was also said, again, you have heard that it was said. He is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting some passage from the Old Testament. You have heard that it was said, and this is right. This is what was said, but the question is, what does this mean, right? What does it mean? How are we to understand, how are we to interpret what was said by Moses? That's the problem. The teachers are giving false interpretations, but then using the law of Moses to bolster their false interpretation. But that's completely contradictory to what Moses intended. This is what false teachers do. They use the Bible out of context in order to support what is actually contrary to the Bible. They use the Bible to undermine the Bible. That's what a false teacher does. This is what Satan does. It's evil and it is satanic. Didn't Satan, we read that in Matthew chapter 4? Satan even quotes the Bible in his temptations to Jesus Christ. Misquotes the Bible, misinterprets the Bible in order to tempt Jesus to sin. So we shouldn't be surprised that people do this today. We have to see through this. We have to have discernment. It's not enough that they're quoting the Bible. Are they quoting it correctly? Are they quoting it in context? Are they interpreting it correctly and rightly? Or are they twisting it and um, skewing it to fit their own devious agenda? That's what we have to ask. And many times, it's devious. It's devious out there. We got to watch it, okay? So we have to have discernment. We have to have discernment. Okay. So it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let her give, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now let's go back to Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1 to 4. Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the later man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the later man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So here we have laws, stipulation, stipulating divorce. Divorce and how it is to take place. Moses commands the man to write a certificate of divorce for the wife, right? When he sends her out of the house. And this certificate of divorce is a legal document that proves that this marriage has been dissolved and then she marries another man, right? She marries another man. If the marriage wasn't dissolved, she couldn't marry the other man because she would still be married to the other. So he's giving them rules and regulations for marriage and for divorce. Now, the false interpretation is they assumed that because Moses gave rules concerning divorce, then it's okay to divorce, right? For any reason. That any reason a man might have fault in his wife then he can divorce his wife 
for any cause that he has. If he doesn't like the way she cooks, if he uh, is not in love with her anymore, right? She snores too much, right? Whatever it is, people come up with all sorts of reasons and excuses uh, in order to justify the sin of divorce. So they're saying in Jesus's day, well, Moses gives us rules and regulations for divorce in the law. Therefore, it must be okay to divorce your wife for any reason, right? For any cause that we might have. But Jesus is saying, no, this is not the case at all. That's the false interpretation, assuming that because there are rules regulating marriage and divorce, that that means God doesn't have a problem with divorce. But notice what Jesus says. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus says, no, divorce is not permitted except on the ground of sexual immorality. This would be the one condition where the one party has a legitimate reason to divorce the other. And this would be unrepentant immorality, unrepentant sexual immorality. If this is happening, then the person that is being offended, the party that is being sinned against, the one that is having adultery committed against them, then they have a legitimate reason, a justifiable reason before God in order to divorce the sinning party, the one who is sinning against them. So that is the only exception Jesus gives for divorce. So it's impossible for divorce to occur without there being sin, right? There has to be sin. Many times there's sin on both parties, right? If it's not because of sexual immorality. If it is because of sexual immorality, then there's at least sin in the one party, though the other one is innocent and has been sinned against. So it's impossible for there to be a marriage and it to end in divorce without there being great sin committed against God, a great sin against God. And that's what Jesus is saying. No, you need to take your marriages very seriously and you should not easily or quickly for no reason, no justifiable reason, divorce your wife only as a last resort in the case of sexual immorality. And then what happens? If you divorce your wife except for sexual immorality, you make her commit adultery. Because what is the wife likely going to do after you divorce her? She's going to get remarried. She's going to get remarried and have another husband. But if this divorce is not justified in the sight of God, then in God's eyes, she's still married to who? She's still married to the former husband. Even though the law of the land says they're divorced, in the sight of God and under the law of God, they're still married. But now she's married to another man, unjustifiable, and she's living with him, and they're having relations. And when that's happening, it's adultery in the sight of God because she's actually still married to the former husband in the sight of God. So he makes her commit adultery. He makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, except for the grounds of sexual immorality. If you marry the divorced woman, then you are committing adultery, right? This according to Christ. So, so is it okay to divorce for any reason? We don't like each other anymore. We're, we fell out of love. What does that have to do with it, right? What does that even mean, you fell out of love? Be committed to one another. Be faithful to one another. That is love in itself, whether you feel have feelings or not. Just do what is right in the sight of God. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 gives a fuller explanation of this. Matthew chapter 19. Verse 1. Matthew 19. Uh, verse 1. Now, says, When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So here, they're asking this question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Right, any cause. 
Now, why would this even be in their mind if they're reading their Bibles carefully? It should not even be in their mind, yet this is what they are asking. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, in terms of the chronology of the Bible, what Jesus quotes from here, did that take place before or after Deuteronomy 24? Well, it's before, right? He's going back to creation. He's going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, to creation, to the garden, before sin had even entered into the world. This is how it was when God established the world. He made them male and female. One man with one woman, and then made this declaration, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The two become one. So if the two are one, how can they be divided? How can they be separated? And that's why he says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. No man has the right to separate what God has joined together. No human court, no human jurisdiction, human government does not have the authority to declare a divorce sanctioned when God says it's unsanctioned. Because God has put them together, no man can separate them. Then verse 7, then they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Right? If this was God's intention from the beginning, that a man would marry a woman and that they would stay married for the remainder of their life, then why are there even rules, why are there even laws concerning divorce at all? Right? Why is that even in the law of Moses? Well, can't we also say that from the beginning, God's intention was that people wouldn't murder other people? Isn't that true as well? So why are there even laws about murder and what to do if someone murders? Isn't it true that it was God's intention from the beginning that people shouldn't worship idols? Then why is there laws about idolatry? So why are there laws concerning all these various things? Because of sin, right? Because of sin and hardness of heart, you have to have the law and the law has to regulate the sinfulness of man. And that's Jesus's answer. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Because he knows you're evil people and you're going to mis misuse and abuse your wives, and this can also, it's spoken of here as husbands toward wives, but it can also be wives toward husbands as well. You know that this is gonna happen in the fallen world. Therefore, there has to be laws regulating it so that the innocent party has some protection against the one that is committing sin against them. And if the woman, if the husband uh, finds his wife unfavorable and wants to get rid of her, then he, there has to be some law, some protection, legal protection for her so that she's not mistreated and she's not put in this vulnerable situation. And that's why Moses commanded them to write a certificate of divorce. But from the beginning, it was not so. This was not God's intention from the beginning, but it's necessary because of the entrance of sin into the world. Then verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. If you divorce your wife except for this one condition, sexual immorality, and you marry another person, then you are committing adultery adultery. Okay, so that is the only stipulation for that. So, divorce then is not permitted, right? It's not permitted under the law of God, and as followers of Christ, divorce shouldn't even be in our vocabulary in terms of our own marriage. Of course, we need to know about it, and we need to speak about it because it is so prominent in the world, but in terms of the husband and wife, the Christian husband and Christian wife, Divorce is not an option. It's not an option. We need to be faithful to one another. We need to be faithful to the wife of our youth because we know from Malachi chapter 2 
God hates divorce. God hates divorce. And he will judge us if we divorce our wives or wives divorce their husbands just willy-nilly for all these various reasons. Okay, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Here we're talking about oaths and our word. Here we're dealing with the commandment that you shall not bear false witness or false testimony. All of these are dealing in one way or another with aspects of the Ten Commandments, of the Ten Commandments. And here he's talking specifically about the second table of the law, how it is that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, one of the ways that we love our neighbor and one of the ways that we love God is we're to be truthful. We're to speak the truth and be men and women who keep our word, right? Who keep our word. Here, again, he quotes from the Old Testament. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, right? You shall not swear falsely. You shall not take false oaths. If you enter into an oath before God, then you need to perform to the Lord what it is that you've sworn to perform. Now, the question here is, he's talking about oaths. He's not talking about day-to-day life, the way that we live day in and day out. We shouldn't be taking oaths all the time, right? Oaths are for very solemn, serious moments in our life, and it's not something that we do day in and day out. The very nature of the oath is that it is rare. It's rare, and that's why we enter into the oath as a pledge of seriousness that we're going to do what it is that we have said because of the importance, the gravity of the issue at hand. So does all God requires in terms of our truthfulness is that we just keep our oaths. As long as we do what we've sworn, then we've fulfilled our obligation to not bear false witness and to not lie, but then day in and day out, the rest of the time, we can be deceptive, we can be secretive, we can be vague and obtuse in the way that we talk so that no one knows what we're saying and we can manipulate words and situations and deceive people day in and day out. Is that what we're supposed to do? Of course not. So yes, we should take our oaths seriously. We should not swear falsely. We should keep our word when we enter into an oath, but we should also be doing that day in and day out all the time. It's not just the oath that must be taken seriously, but every day when we're talking, right? When we're communicating with people, we ought to be faithful and true in everything that we say so that people aren't wondering, what's this guy talking about? We need to speak in clear, simple language so that everyone knows and understands what we're saying and not speak in riddles and vagaries and these kind of obscure ways so as to hide our true intention and what we really mean, right? That's what liars do. That's what Satan does. He speaks in these kinds of ways so as to deceive people. And this is how many people behave, right? They say things and they cloud it in such a way that you have no idea what they're saying or they double talk. They talk out of both sides of their mouth, right? They're saying one thing, but then they really mean something else. And then, and then you, you call them on it and they'll say, oh, no, that's not what I said. I didn't say that. What are you talking about? You're putting words in my mouth. It's like, no, I'm not. You're lying, right? You're lying. You're being deceptive. You are being manipulating with your words. Well, we shouldn't be like that. Our yes should mean yes, and our no should mean no, right? When we are talking, when we're speaking, we should speak truthfully, clearly, so that there's no ambiguity and everyone knows exactly what we're talking about, right? What we're talking about. That's the way that we should be, not in this devious, deceptive use of words. Okay, Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 21. 
23:21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You should be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So if you make a vow to the Lord, don't delay in fulfilling it. Be faithful, right? You've sworn this to God. You made a vow to God. So do what you said, right? Do what you said, because God will require it of you. And if you don't fulfill your vow, you'll be guilty of sin. So if you're not going to do it, then don't don't make the vow, right? Don't make the vow. It's better not to vow than to vow and not do it, right? If you don't vow, then you're not going to be guilty of sin. So be careful what with your words. Now, again, is that just concerning vows? And the answer is no. We need to be careful with our words all the time, all the time, in every way, in, in every day. So you have heard it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but should perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, Jesus tells him, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or the earth, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Jesus says, but I say, do not take an oath at all. Now, he doesn't mean this unequivocally. He doesn't mean that there's never a time, and we'll look at this, uh, here in a second, for a Christian to make an oath. He's simply trying to make a point. The point that he's making is, in our daily life, whenever we're interacting with people, we should not have to swear, we should not have to enter into an oath or a vow for people to have assurance that we're going to do what we've said that we're going to do. So if my wife asks me to stop at Brahms and get some milk on the way home, I should not have to take a vow before God, put my hand on the Bible, and swear that I promise you I will stop and get that milk on the way home. Or uh, <clears throat> you're going to the city, swear to me that you're not going to stop at the casino and gamble on the way. I shouldn't have to do that. I should just say I'm not going to do that. And that should be good enough, right? Because I should be a person whose word is truthful. And a person that has to swear all the time in order to convince people that they're going to do what they said that they're going to do is untrustworthy, right? And they're untrustworthy because they have a history of lying, of not doing what they say they're going to do. So when we're talking to people, we should not have to swear, take an oath, put our hand on the Bible, right? Swear by heaven, swear by the temple, right? Swear by the earth. We shouldn't have to do that, right? We should simply be able to say, this is what is true, this is what I'm going to do, and that person should believe that we're going to be faithful because they know we're trustworthy and that this is what is true of us is that we keep our word. We keep our word. So that's why he says, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven. The heaven is the throne of God, right? So don't do that. Don't take an oath by the earth. That's his footstool. Don't take an oath by the Jerusalem. That's the city of God. Don't take an oath by your head. You can't even make one hair white or black. You don't even have the power to do that. So why are you swearing by your own head? Just let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And anything else in this comes from evil, right? It is evil, it is sinful, it is wicked to undertake this type of uh, speaking, these kinds of oaths, uh, this type of life where the person does not mean what they say. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Okay, Matthew 23. Now, Matthew chapter 23 gives us another explanation of what is taking place during the time of Christ. Here, Jesus, this is the passage where Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon the scribes and Pharisees. And we remember that the scribes and Pharisees, they are the teachers at this time. So they're the ones teaching the people, and the people are following their example, and this is what they're doing. So if this is what the teachers are doing, then what's going to be true of the people as well? They're going to be doing it, right? The disciple is not above his teacher, but each one, when he is fully trained, becomes just like his teacher. They're going to be just like them 
That's why Jesus is teaching them the proper way, the proper way. Matthew 23, verse 16. <coughs> Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that is made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You see what they're doing here? They're using trickery. They're using these kinds of, of games that they're playing with words, with language, in order to get out of doing what they say that they're going to do. Yes, I know I swore to you that I would sell you that cow for $100. But I didn't swear by the gold in the temple. I just swore by the temple. And, and so I, I didn't really mean it. And, and, and actually, I'm going to sell it to this other guy for $150 because he offered me more money. So yeah, I know I made an agreement with you. And I know we swore on it, but I swore by the temple. I didn't swear by the gold in the temple. Therefore, it's nothing. Or yes, I promised you that you know you could marry... Uh, my daughter, I would give your, your my daughter to your son in marriage, but now there's someone else who's come along and they've got more money, and therefore uh, I'm going to renege on that because I swore by the altar, but I didn't swear by the gift that was on the altar, right? So, you see what they're doing? This is the way they're getting out of and making void their word so that they can do whatever they want. And that's what Jesus is confronting. This is what he's dealing with in his own day. Well, which is greater, the temple or the gold in the temple? It's the temple that makes the gold sacred that is there. right? And which is greater, the altar or the gift that is on the altar? Well, it's the altar that makes the gift sacred. So if you swear by the altar, you're swearing by it and everything that's on it. And if you swear by the temple, you're swearing by the one who dwells within it. And if you swear by heaven, you're swearing by the throne of God who lives there. And God's going to hold you accountable for those words, for what it is that you said you're going to do. And now you've not fulfilled it to your fellow man, but God's going to require it of you on the day of judgment because you are taking these false oaths and you shouldn't even be swearing in this way anyway. You should simply say yes or no. And if you agree to sell your cow to this man for $100, and then another man comes along and offers you $150 for the same cow, you should say, well, I've already promised it to him, and I can't go back on my word. I am a man of my word, even though I'm going to lose out on $50. Isn't it better to lose out on the $50 and be a man of your word and be truthful, right, than to get the extra money and break your word? Right? It's better for you before God, right, because God's going to be pleased with that. It's honoring to God. And it's better for you in terms of other people because other people, that reputation is going to spread and people are going to say, no, you know that this man is honest. If he says it, he's going to do it, right? Even if it costs him, you know that he's going to do it and he's going to be faithful. That's the way that we should be day in and day out in our homes, in our dealings, in our affairs, in our business, whatever we're doing, we should be faithful, true. We should let our yes be yes and let our no be no. And we should not be undertaking and invoking the name of God in order to affirm to people the truthfulness of our word, right? Our faithfulness should be all that is needed to affirm the truthfulness of our word. If we are faithful and consistent and truthful day in and day out, then people don't need us to swear all the time because they know if this man says he's going to do it, then he's going to do it. And he's not going to go back on his word. Now, there are some who take this passage to mean that no Christian should ever take any oath, right? Any oath or any vow. And there are some traditions that would even forbid Christians from serving in government posts or positions uh, or serving on a jury or, or going as a witness in court because whenever you do that, you have to take an oath. You have to take a vow during those times. Jesus is not forbidding the taking of oaths and vows in those special circumstances, right? He cannot be meaning that. 
Because if so, he would be contradicting himself and he would be contradicting other places in the Bible. He means it in the sense that, again, day in and day out, we should not be taking oaths and vows to attest to the truthfulness of our word. However, when there are those times when there is a serious issue, when there is a grave event that calls for fear of God, solemnity, right, the, the necessity to invoke the fear of, of the Lord in the ones who are there, the parties that are there, then it is necessary at times to enter into a vow so that everyone has peace of mind, everyone understands that what we're doing here is very serious, right? And we need to take it serious and we need to be truthful in what we are saying. Such as when we get married, right? When we get married, do we not take vows before God and vows to, before the minister, vows before the crowd and vows to one another, right? Is it a sin for the husband and wife to swear to make a vow to one another that they will be faithful and true till death alone parts them. No, but is that something that they're doing every single day? No, you do it one time, right? When you get married, that's when you do it. And that is because it's a serious event. This is a marriage. The two are coming together for the rest of their life. So it is a very serious, somber event. Therefore, it's necessary to take a vow in this case to attest to the faithfulness and truthfulness of the husband and wife one to another, or in a court of law, when it's necessary in order to determine the truth, to understand justice, right? How are we going to know if this man is guilty or innocent if the witnesses that are brought forward are liars and they're not telling the truth? So they have to take a vow under oath of perjury, right? That if we find out that you lied to us under oath, then we're going to hold you responsible you perjured yourself and you're going to go to jail unless you're the Clintons or any of the others like that who perjure themselves all the time and they're never held responsible, okay? But whenever a person perjures themselves, they are guilty before the Lord and they're guilty under the law of the land. And that's why the witness, before he takes the stand, he places his hand on the Bible. He takes an oath before the court, before God, that what he says is going to be true, that he's not going to lie because in the court of law, you have to have the truth in order to determine whether the person is guilty or innocent, right? And uh, the life of this person is on the line. So we have to be able to ascertain the truth. Therefore, it's necessary to take the vow, to take a vow in order to show that I am truthful, I am honest, I am not lying, but I am giving my word that this is indeed true. Okay, a couple of examples. Genesis 24. Genesis 24. Genesis chapter 24. And we'll start reading in verse 1. It says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, The oldest of his household, who had charge of of all that he had. Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which he came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow them, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. So here is Abraham sinning by requiring his servant to swear to him. And is the servant sinning by swearing to Abraham. And it cannot be the case, right? Now, why is Abraham doing this? Is this a light issue or is this a very serious issue? This is a big issue. This is a very big deal. And so he's making the servant swear in order to bring to his attention the importance of this matter and how serious it is 
that he does it faithfully and does everything that Abraham has called him to do. So in this case, it's not a sin for Abraham to put him under an oath, nor is it a sin for the servant to enter into that oath because it is a very serious issue, very serious issue. But he's not making him do this. Come here, my servant, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me that you will take the sheep and give them some water today. He's not doing that. Day in and day out, he's telling his servant, hey, okay, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, and he's not requiring an oath. But here, the getting of a wife for his son and a godly wife from his kindred, not from the Canaanites, because they're evil, they're pagans, they're idolaters, they're unbelievers. That's the issue. Where is he going to find a believing wife for his son? Well, it's not going to be among the Canaanites. The most likely place is from his kindred. Because there, there are going to be people who know the truth, who know the gospel. There's going to more likely be someone who's a believer there among them than there are among the Canaanites. So you have to go up there to get a wife. And I want you to be faithful to fulfill what I'm calling you to do and take it very seriously. And that's why he put him under a note. Chapter 47. Chapter 47. We read this on... Saturday at Men's Bible Study, Genesis 47, 29 through 31. This is Jacob, or Israel, before he dies. It says, When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So here, Israel requires Joseph to swear to him that he will take him and not bury him in Egypt, but take him back to the land of his fathers and bury him there with Abraham, with Isaac, and with the others there. Now again, is this a serious issue? Is this a pivotal moment in the life of Israel, in the life of Joseph? Yes, this isn't some minor day in and day out uh, aspect of life. This is a very serious, very grave issue. And so he wants assurance for himself, and he wants the gravity and the seriousness of the issue to be on the mind of Joseph so that Joseph will do what he said that he will do. And that's why he calls him to swear. Swear to me that you will do this. And Joseph doesn't deny that. He swore. And we know that both Jacob and Joseph were godly, righteous men. They're believers, right? And so they are entering into this oath. Also, one last passage, Matthew 26. Here, this is uh, Jesus Christ. So it's impossible for Jesus to sin. And Jesus did not refuse to take an oath or to swear, to enter into an oath or enter into a vow. Uh, Jesus did this when he was on trial, when he was on trial. 26, Matthew 26, 63 says, But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you. To adjure someone is to put someone under an oath or under a vow. So I'm putting you under a vow. I'm putting you under a, an oath. And this is in a, a court. Though the court is itself corrupt, it is a legal proceeding. It is an a, official uh, capacity. And so he's putting him under a vow in a courtroom situation. Okay. So I adjure you or I put you under a vow by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ the Son of God. Up to this point, Jesus hasn't said anything. But now notice, Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus went under the vow, and he answered him after he was adjured by the living God. So, therefore, again, it's not a sin to enter under an oath or a vow for serious issues, but this will be very rare. This isn't going to be daily. It may not be even uh, yearly, but a few times in our life, 
that we might enter into a vow like this. And then when we do that, we should be faithful and true. So whether it's under a vow or whether it's in our daily, day in and day out life, what should be true of us? Men and women of our work, do what we say we're going to do. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. And in this way, we are truthful because this is how God is. We should be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. God is holy, we should be holy. Does God say yes but mean no? And does God say no but mean yes? He doesn't do that. Whatever he says is true. If he says yes, it means yes. If he says no, it means no. That's how we should be. So we shouldn't say yes but mean no and say no but mean yes. How can you get anywhere if you can't even agree on what yes is and what no is? Okay, next we go on to verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Here, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this was taught in the law of Moses, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But again, the question is, what does it mean, right? What does it mean? And in what context is this to be practiced? And is this only to be practiced? And there's nothing else that God requires of us. Does this permit people from seeking personal vengeance, from seek, for seeking personal retaliation? When someone insults me or do, someone does something to me that I don't like, then am I free because the Bible teaches eye for eye and tooth for tooth that I can go and get justice for myself against that person without going through the proper channels, right? That's the question that Jesus is addressing when it comes to personal insults, daily insults, daily offenses committed against us. Many times those daily offenses, they're not going to be rectified, right? There's nowhere for us to go to get justice in those situations, so if I am denied justice in the court of law or by the officials, then am I free to, as a private citizen, go and get vengeance for myself, go out and get justice for myself, right? He injured my eye, so I'm going to go injure his eye. He knocked my tooth out, I'm going to knock his tooth out, right? Because this is what God requires, justice and only justice. So he injured me, therefore I'm going to retaliate and I'm going to injure him. And then we all go around and our, get our vendettas against one another. We're vigilantes. We're out there running around and doing these types of things. Is this pleasing in the sight of God? And the answer is, of course not. Of course, we cannot do this. Now, a couple of passages that teach eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 21 and verse 22 Exodus 21:22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall oppose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, strike for strike. So here... If the pregnant woman is hit when the two men are fighting, right? The two men are fighting. The woman of the one is trying to intervene in some way to save her husband, to help, to stop. And in doing so, she gets hit and it causes her to go into labor and she uh, has the child, has the child. Well, if the child comes and there's no injury to him, then the person, the, the offending party should be fined. He has to pay a fine for what he has done. But if there is an injury to the child, if the child comes out and through the, the wound, he lost an eye, he lost a foot, right? A hand, right? Or he dies, then whoever injured the child, his eye should be put out, right? His hand should be cut off or his life should be forfeited if the child dies, right? That's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Okay, also Leviticus 24. 
Leviticus chapter 24. Twenty-four, verse seventeen. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. So here, again, we're talking about vengeance, justice, in terms of this present life, going through the proper authorities and through the proper channels. Right? If someone injures another person, then what justice requires is that what they've done to that person is what should be done to them. They, if they put out their eye, then their eye should be put out. If they fracture them, then they should be fractured. If they took a life, then their life should be forfeited, right? This is what justice requires. Then Deuteronomy 19. And without this, you cannot have justice. If someone kills another person and they're not put to death, that's not justice, that's not justice, and it's not good for the land. Deuteronomy 19.15 A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So here, we're not talking about people going out and retaliating. This is in an official proceeding, through official channels, through the government, through the magistrate, whatever municipality there is, whatever system of justice and law and court that there is in the land, then this is how we are to address our grievances with other people. Right? So if someone has injured me, then I need to bring it to the authorities. The authorities need to investigate it. And if they determine that, yes, this person committed this crime, then they need to repay the criminal according to what he has done. That's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And that's what God expects of the authorities, the ruling authorities over the land, the government. They are required to get justice for the innocent against the guilty. And the justice that they are to give to the innocent is to be consistent with the crime that was committed against them. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. Right, and it has to be established by two or three witnesses. So there, which is means investigation. The witnesses have to be trustworthy. They have to be uh, people who are honest. They're brought forward. They corroborate uh, the witness, the testimony of the victim. They say, "Yes, I saw it. This is what happened." And all of them, their testimony is in agreement. Okay, now we have two or three witnesses. They've attested to the crime. We've determined that, yes, this man is guilty. This other man has been sinned against. Therefore, we need to punish the guilty party according to what he did to the innocent party. Right? He slugged him in the head. Okay, we need to slug him in the head. Right? He knocked out his tooth. We're going to bust out his. He cut off his hand. We're going to cut his hand off. He killed him. We're going to put him to death. That's what the law requires. This is what justice requires and what we should expect from our ruling authorities, which is what's not happening in our own day. It's not happening at all, and that's why there's crime, evil, chaos, misery, all throughout the land is because there is no justice, right? Criminal reform, what does that even mean? Criminal reform, criminal justice, what is that even? What is that? That's you're talking about a contradiction. Justice for the criminal? What about victim justice? That's what we need, justice for the one who has been Sinned against the innocent party. They are the ones that should get justice, not the criminal. They should get justice and justice in the proper sense, the true sense, which is according to the law of God. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for eye, life. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. 
the judges shall inquire diligently. Notice that, diligently, right? So not haphazardly, not willy-nilly, diligent investigation to determine the truth, right? This person is saying this, this malicious witness has risen up. Well, how can we have justice if the witness is malicious? If he's not truthful, if he's not honest, if he's not speaking forthrightly and telling us the truth, but he's lying about it, well, now we might put an innocent person to death or we might punish an innocent person for something that he hasn't done. So they, the priests, who are the judges and the rulers, the priests and the judges in office in those days, they're the officials, they're the ones overseeing the testimony and the proceeding. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness, and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. You shall purge the evil from your midst. So the lying witness, whatever he would have done to the other is what should be done to him. If his lying testimony would have led to the execution of this man, then what needs to happen to him? He needs to be executed. Now this right here is what needs to happen to CNN, MSNBC, all the media. They're liars. They're big liars all the time. They're malicious witnesses constantly spewing out lies all the time. Isn't that what's happening today? Per perpetuating lies? Well, if there was true justice, then when they are lying and it's found out that they lied, then they should be punished accordingly, right? Not under this guise of freedom of the press. Freedom of the press never meant freedom to lie. Freedom to lie. No way, Jose. It cannot be the case. Verse 20, And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So here, in some cases, pity, compassion is evil. This is evil pity or evil compassion. Oh, we don't want him to die. Well, if he deserves it, he deserves it. That's what has to happen. And we can't have crocodile tears for these kinds of people, but rather there needs to be justice. Okay, so the Bible clearly teaches eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and life for life. So that's what Jesus is putting forward. Now, does do these verses that we just read give people the authority and right to go out and get justice on their own? And that is, of course, that is not the case. The Bible never teaches that. But in all of these cases, we're talking about going through the proper channels that God has instituted. God has appointed ruling authorities, right? Magistrates, governors, whatever it is, however the land is ruled, that they are the ones who are servants of God, who have been appointed by God to get vengeance for the innocent party. And we are to go through the proper channels in order to get vengeance for the wrongs that are committed against us. And if we are denied justice, then what are we supposed to do? We, then we have to trust God. Leave it to the Lord and know that God will get vengeance, but not say, okay, the court didn't give me justice because courts can be corrupt. Judges can be bribed, right? They may not do what's right. So now I'm going to go do it on my own. No, we can't do that. Then we just have to trust the Lord and do what's good and right in the sight of God and don't go and seek to get justice on our own. And in many of these cases, when sins are committed against us or wrongs are committed against us, there's not even an avenue to go get justice, right? If someone steals $20 from me, right, and I know that they did it and they know that they did it, well, am I going to be able to call the police and report, hey, this guy stole $20 from me? They're not, they can't do anything about that, right? That's going to happen all the time. So am I going to break into his house and steal 20 from him? No, I can't do that. Am I going to go slash his tires and get my $20 one way or another? Right? <laughs> I can't do those kinds of things. No way. We can't do that. We just have to leave it to the Lord. Leave it to the Lord and know in the end, God will vindicate the righteous and he will make all of these things right. Okay, well, we'll have to stop there and we'll pick back up on this one next week. Um, and w w what we have to understand is that retaliation and vengeance is not evil if it's done properly. Properly, meaning through the proper authorities. On earth, those are 
the governing authorities, right? Whenever a crime is committed and we go through the proper authorities and punishment is inflicted upon the criminal, then we are getting vengeance. God is retaliating on our behalf through the authorities. So that's not in and of itself. It's not evil to want justice and to want punishment upon evildoers, right? Upon evildoers. The issue that we're dealing with here is it has to go through the proper channels, right? It can't be a free-for-all where we're all just running around getting vengeance for ourselves. We have to go through the authorities, and if the authorities deny us justice, then we just have to leave it to God. Leave it to God and know, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, right? Do not avenge yourself. We can't avenge ourselves, but we leave it to the wrath of God. Okay, so we'll pick back up there uh, next week with that, and that's good because it ties in well with the next passage, to love your enemies. And these are often, these verses are often misquoted, misused uh, in the world today, especially amongst those who are promoters of social justice. They say social justice, but it's really social injustice because it brings about injustice to everyone, right? And they use these verses, which are dealing with the way we deal with people personally, and then they try to apply it to the government and say, this is the way the government should be. But it's not the government's duty to show mercy to criminals. It's the government's duty to execute criminals, right? To give justice to the innocent and to be blind in that way, right? If the facts support punishment, then they need to punish them in the proper way and not uh, say, well, we're going to have compassion. That's not the judge's duty to have compassion. It is his duty to get justice. So we have to understand what these mean in the relationship to the government in these other passages that teach justice. And many times people want to make this passage supplant, right? In this case, what they're doing is they're making the rules and regulations for the government supplant the expectation for the personal and what we should do in the way that we relate to our fellow man. What people are doing today is they're taking the way that we should relate to our fellow man and making it supplant the expectation that God has for the government in order to promote a society of injustice, of so-called love and grace. But it's not gracious and loving for the innocent. Okay? All right, so we'll stop there, and uh, then we'll pick back up next week.